0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelance and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We have with us today a returning guest and Randy Walker, both active in Vero Beach, Florida, and New York City. He's a sports marketing, communications, and media specialist and the managing partner of New Chapter Media, based in New York City. Randy's most noted for his work in the tennis industry, highlighted by a 12 year stint in the marketing and communications division of the USTA. Featured work on 13 U.S. Open championships, 22 U.S. Davis Cup ties, and three Olympic games. Sports Illustrated went on, as far as to label Randy, the Roger Federer of tennis publicity. And on a personal note, Randy is the person who is responsible for introducing me to my co-host, Mr. Steve Flink, a Hall of Famer. It's a privilege to have Randy on with Steve and I tonight. Please welcome back to the pod, Randy Walker. Randy, we we got the whole gang together, and thank you for introducing me to uh, just an uh, unbelievable individual, and Mr. Flink. I feel like I'm the person who introduced Martina
1: Navratilova to Pam Shriver or John McEnroe to Peter Fleming. So
2: I want to say, David, uh, briefly that for those that can't see Randy and that only listening here, he looks like he's ready to go out and play 18 holes of go- golf and shoot a 72.
1: Oh, well make that more like a 92. And, uh, but I, but I'm playing three sets of doubles before that.
0: <laughs> hey, you know, for the, for the listeners, we're going to have, um, an unbelievable episode and it's really going to be a lot of Randy and Steve just going back and forth in their stories. Cause they have a lot of history together talking about their books and just journey along the tennis world. Um, But before we get that, I first want to talk to Randy briefly about you just had your Vero Beach Futures event. It's tied to the Marty Fish Foundation. And that mission statement is uh, to provide children the opportunities to participate in safe and impactful fitness, nutrition, and enrichment programs, empowering them to the healthy lives. Tournament has been in existence uh, in Vero Beach since like 1995. Guys like Andy Roddick, Tim Henman, and others played it. Um, You guys just finished it. How'd it go?
1: Wow, it was really great. We returned to our traditional April date and uh, it's just so rewarding to work uh, uh, for this uh, Marty Fish Children's Foundation and for this tournament. It's uh, all the uh, the money that is raised at the tournament goes to the Marty Fish Children's Foundation, which helps at-risk children in Indian River County, Florida. So uh, that's the, the, the main goal is just to raise money to help children's lives. But, you know, just from a tennis point of view, you know, working at the $15,000 level, this is entry level professional tennis. So you're getting kids that are just playing their first tournaments, you know, one of the traditions that we have at the the tournament is when a player wins a match and earns their first ever ATP point, we have them, you know, pose behind the Marty Fish Children's Foundation banner and hold up their number one, you know, with uh, you know, their first ATP point. Uh just um uh this year we had a young 16-year-old player named Cooper Williams who actually was born in New York City. And um, he won his first ATP point with Yvonne Lendl, Vero Beach's own Yvonne Lendl, watching on. Cooper had been uh, Andy Murray's practice partner at the USCA National Campus with Yvonne looking on. And Yvonne said, You know, well, if you play a night match, uh, you know, I'll come over and watch you. So, of course, me being the tournament director, knowing that, I put cooper williams on at night so that naman (laughs) could get there and uh, cooper won his first round match won his first atp point we tweeted it out andy murray tweeted you know well done cooper so uh that was good but you know one of the reasons why i left the usta uh was i really wanted to to run uh, an event you know i wanted to run events and and this fit perfect for perfectly for me and uh it's uh, super rewarding for me on many levels
0: awesome Awesome. It's so special when you do get that When when a player gets that first ATP uh, tour event. And it's great that you highlight it and uh, emphasize it, because as we all know, it's it's not easy to get those precious ATP tour events. Hey,
1: some people that's, you know, that's like as big as, you know, uh, you know, you know, in their careers, you know, winning a Grand Slam or making Mm -hmm. it to a Grand Slam for the first. I mean, it's a it's a monumental achievement that 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 people uh tennis players don't ever forget we had a conversation with tommy paul recently and we asked him you know oh you know have you ever played vero beach futures you know what are your memories of that and he says that's where i got my first atp point so here's somebody who's top 40 player and still remembers that so it's definitely a hallmark hallmark achievement
0: oh 100 percent um one thing i want to get before you and steve start talking about a lot of your collaborative work together is you know the first time I met you, Randy, in person was at, it was at Delray Beach Open, and you know I've been going there for several years now. I, lo- I love love going down there, especially in February, getting the opportunity to leave the winter of Chicago to head down there. It's something I look uh, forward to doing every year. You have a funny story about um, you know when Juan Martín Del Potro recently retired, you know a couple months ago now. Um, you were ready to do a book launch with him at the 2020 Delray Beach Open. Tell a little bit about that story, because that did not exactly go according to plan.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no. Well, the bad luck with uh, Juan Martin Del Potro wasn't limited to just his health and his uh, latter half of his career, but me trying to publish a book about him. So, um, you know, this was, uh, you know, right. We're ready to uh, originally we're going to have it launched at the U.S. Open, you know, the year after he had gotten to the final. And then he had that uh, mishap where he uh, hurt his knee at, uh, at Queens Club you know, so we're kind of in doubt whether we were going to be able to launch it at the U.S. Open. And uh, I just decided, hey, you know what, I'm not going to take this chance. I don't think he's going to play. Let's hold off. And, uh, you know, he traditionally had played the Delray Beach Open and it's a great market for him. And I knew I was going to be there. So we kind of planned everything to launch the book at uh, the Delray Beach Open. And then sure enough, he, you know, pulls out and, you know, obviously didn't play for for many years. So my 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 book launch was uh, me sitting in the stands, holding the book, you know, taking selfies. So, (laughs) but uh, you know, the book, uh, uh, you know, was kind of slow out of the, out of the gate, but you know, since he had that emotional retirement um, down in Buenos Aires and we did, you know, some social media marketing with so forth, the book's actually done very well. It's called Juan Martin Del Potro, The Gentle Giant. And you can read all the details of that failed book launch, I wrote an article on it called uh, The Anatomy of a Failed Book Launch, you know, one Martin Del Botro, so, uh, but yeah, Delray Beach Open is, what a great tournament, the Barons do such a great job, and you know, it's really just a, a small, you know, a, a, a great field and, and it's very intimate. You can get very close to the players. So, you know,
0: highly recommend going to that. I know I'll see
1: you there next year, Dave. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Now the, now the fun stuff, especially for me, my, my part is basically done. Now I get to kind of sit and listen because I get to talk to you and Steve and I have a few books here. It's sometimes hard to see in the background, but I got the, the Pete Sampras book here. I got the greatest tennis matches of all time. A couple books here. I know you guys have worked together for years. Um, I guess I'll ask, I'll, I'll start with Steve first. I mean, how did you connect um, up with, with Randy?
2: Oh, uh, well, I had known Randy forever. Long before I even worked for the USTA. Uh, I, I used to go down and cover the, uh, I did for ESPN a couple of times in the early 80s, the NCAA championships. And I would go down there for the weekend. And I that's when I first met Randy. So I'd known him a long, long time. And then I was aware that he was starting when, when it came when he started his company and he started publishing books. I was aware of that. And that's really was the connection. So that then we had discussions about the greatest tennis matches of all of, of all time. Randy knew that I David had done a book originally, The Greatest Tennis Matches of the Twentieth Century, came out at the very end of ninety-nine. And uh, that, so much time had elapsed. And in that original book, there was no Federer match in there, no Djokovic, no Nadal. So much had, had happened between 99 and a little more than a decade later that Randy and I talked and, and I, ended, I ended up writing a, a, a new book. And it was really half of it was a lot, there were a lot of new matches and Federer and Nadal and Djokovic were all featured prominently. And it was great fun to be able to, uh, to to do that book which i think had greater impact especially because of of the inclusion of all three of, the, of those guys so that, that's really the origins of it but uh, i i think the, the 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 most interesting thing that happened regarding that book was i said to randy we were closing in the fall of ni- at the end of 2011 and i said randy you know i knew we were going to be proofing everything and looking at it over we was going to have to close in early stages of of 2012 and I said Randy what if we get it there's an incredible match in Australia and and he reassured me he said look if there's something phenomenal we'll we'll get it in I promise you and I said good because I just feel like that would be a shame to miss out on that sure enough we get the five hour 53 minute epic with Novak beating Rafa in the Australian final in 2012 and uh Randy, it, it, no, that match hadn't been over three minutes. And I got an email from Randy saying, well, what, what do you think? Knowing he knew right off that I was going to want to get that in. And so it became the cover of the book, David. Yeah. And not only that, great second story. I don't, I don't think Randy knows this story. Randy, you'll tell me if you do. But I gave the book to Novak at the 2012 Wimbledon. And he was very inquisitive and wanted to know about the selection process and enjoyed seeing the cover, which was obviously a big victory for him several months later. Rafa was injured a lot that year and he lost early at Wimbledon, didn't play the Open. So I didn't get a chance to give it to him till the 2013 U.S. Open. And uh, and I showed him a listing, Randy, in the back. I ranked the matches in the back. And I said, Rafa, look at this. And I showed him where his matches were in the book, but also the ranking list and having him against Roger in the 2008 Wimbledon final as the number one ranked match. And he said, yes, yes, that was a great match. But then he points to the cover of him standing on the court with Novak prior to that 2012 Australian. He says, but this was a great match too. That always amazed me because Randy would know that that's the kind of thing very, very few players would do. They might joke and say, why did you have to put that picture on the cover? I wish you could have used another one. He's actually going out of his way to point out to me how proud he was to be part of that match and how it was a great match as well. I love that. I love that, uh, that interlude with him.
0: What was your deadline when that match happened, when you got that text from Randy, what was your deadline and how you had to, because the book was basically done. Like you said, you were just keeping it open for the rare exception.
2: I think Randy was pretty generous on the time, gave me a couple of weeks, whatever it was. He he, he knew I I wasn't going to, wasn't going to take too long to just do that one. He gave me enough to feel crazy rushed. Everything else was all set and been, we'd looked it over. Everything was ready to go. So I don't, I remember getting it done over probably a, a two week period, I would say. And then it, it worked out. And then Randy starts pulling out the cover photos. He starts sending me photos from that, you know, the, and we both agreed that this one of the two of them standing there right before the match, looking apprehend, understandably apprehensive about a big moment ahead. And it just worked out beautifully. And the amazing thing about it, Randy, is that here we are in 2022. And Raph has won his 21st major already. Novak trying to tie him in a few weeks at the French. And and that cover is still current. Who would have believed it? I mean, they were so deep into their careers already. And here we are 10 years later. And that cover, it still fits.
0: I'm looking at the cover now. Their faces do look 10 years younger, but yeah, still relevant.
2: (laughs) I don't think either one of them believe that Randy right that, that that cover right now would look would be would would look so right
1: yeah no I mean here it is and uh yeah it really is perfect I mean uh that's a great story with what Rafa and Novak uh said uh, uh said to you and uh yeah originally we were going to have Rafa from the 2008 Wimbledon final <laughs> on the cover but uh <laughs> you know, but this was just absolutely perfect. And uh, it made the book a little bit more current. And obviously, there's been some other books about the 2008 final. So this 2008 Wimbledon final. So this also kind of, uh, you know, differentiates from that. But, uh, you know, this is uh, I was going through it last night. And, you know, the other thing, um, you know, that's so great about this book is your rankings in the back of the book of the greatest strokes of all time so did what did Rafa say when you when you ranked him number two behind Roger as far as best forehand
2: ever no, he, he didn't comment but the, no the interesting <laughs> thing actually that was after the round of 16 that I gave him the book he'd just beaten Kohlschreiber it was the same night that Roger lost to Robredo and we didn't get that quarterfinal that we eagerly anticipated but then after the semifinals with Gasquet I happened to be walking down the hallway after the press conference and he ends up right next to me. And, 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 uh, and I said hello again. And he said, Oh, I've been reading the book. I've been looking at the stacks, I've been looking and he was very enthused. And so he didn't make a comment about being too, too. I, I at that time, I don't think he, I, I don't think he would have, he would have understood it was a tough call between the two at that time on, on the forehand, but I enjoyed doing the, the greatest strokes. That would, I took a lot of time making those selections. You know, and I think what's
1: so great about this book also is, that um you know there's a whole generation of tennis fans who you know scary enough for all of us you know may have never seen even martina navratilova and chris Everett play um you know a lot of these young fans especially on you know twitter and social media are just Newbies And all they know is Roger Novak and Serena and and Rafa, you know, but they don't know, you know, how great, uh, you know, Billie Jean King was and Althea Gibson and, uh, you know, Jack Kramer and so forth. And that they can read through this book and become educated about all these great players, you know, pre, uh, you know, Roger, Rafa, Serena, Novak era. So, you know, that's why I think this is really one of the most important, um, you know, tennis books out there.
0: I won't put you on the spot either, Steve, but you know, there may be a book out there in the future that could have some matches with young Carlos Alcaraz and uh, (laughs) what Iga Sviatek is doing right now is unbelievable. I think as of recording, she's won 28 matches in a row or something like that. So um, if you had an interest of doing this in the future, I think you may be able to add to that list a little bit um still a lot left to be played to see if they meet your criteria of one of the greatest tennis matches of all time but I'm just throwing that out there because I know so many people love reading your books and I know it's in the back of your mind
1: you know you know the thing about it is you know ever since we've done the book and obviously I want to try to promote the book you know whenever and wherever I can and
0: you know anytime there's an epic
1: match that goes on I immediately email Steve and say you know hey what'd you think of that match you know what you know Would that qualify as one of the top matches, et cetera? And I always get a very detailed response from Steve that, you know, meticulously analyzes the matches he always does so well and, um, you know, puts it in perspective, you know, you know, kind of says, Hey, you know, the quality was just not quite as good as, you know, this match or that match and so forth. So, I mean, there's, Steve is the expert on a lot of things, tennis, you know, but, it, you know, specifically in a micro uh, uh, point of view, you know, he's the expert on the greatest tennis matches of all time. So anytime there's a an epic match between Roger and uh, Novak, um, you know, I know we had emailed about that 2019 final and, um, you know, any, uh, you know, some of the Stan Winka, you know, uh, Novak matches and so forth. You know, I always email Steve and get his perspective and he's always just spot on. And, you know, he has in the forward of the book, you know, the criteria of you know, what makes a great match, you know, that it has to be, you know, two great champions have to be late in the tournament and, um, you know, and so forth. So the criteria that he uses is, uh, you know, very specific and very thought out. So, uh, you know, tip my hat to, to Steve. Oh,
0: no, no <laughs> doubt. I, I want to talk about, um, Steve's newest project. Um, and that's the Pete Sampras book. Cause I've, I thought that book was phenomenal. And I think I'm, Someone who may be able to take a more neutral approach in that growing up as a fan, I always respected the heck out of Pete, but I was more of an Andre fan. So when you take someone from more of an Andre fan to read a Pete book and to uh, and to state and to be neutral and to state how well the book was written, I loved it. I read it twice once just when I first got it, and then second in preparation for one of our favorite episodes we ever did, Steve, was the the Pete and Andre episode. I, I listened to that a few times, and I think that was one of our best conversations. Um, I read it and learned a lot more the second time I read. And I think you do that a lot of times when you read books. Um, certain things stand out the additional time. Talk a little bit about your work Um with that book as well, again the title is Pete Sampras' greatness revisited. Um, fantastic book, any tennis fan would love it.
2: Well, which way? Well, I guess let me start. I, I, uh, Randy and I had talked about that for a few years. It was really a question of timing, and and I understood that. But we finally we sat down and cemented it. Uh, this would have been sort of late 18 This was in two thousand eighteen. Randy. Yeah. And uh, you know, for me to wrap up the writing in 2019 and it came out in 2020, uh, I just felt and Randy understood this and he got it, too, because he's, 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 a, he's a central, crucial figure in the history of tennis. He's the greatest American player of all time and in the argument for the greatest of all time. And he uh, is too easily forgotten. I mean, just as Rod Labor was by the time Pete was dominated, it tends to be it gets back to what Randy was saying. The younger generation it's everything in front of them. And what's behind is, is quickly forgotten. And I felt that Pete, especially being a soft-spoken, self-effacing man, uh, you know, and he wasn't out there in the public eye the way John Mackino has continuously been. It's remarkable how McEnough stayed in the forefront with commercials and commentary and all the rest. So I just felt like Sampras had to be honored in this fashion. I also felt, David, that the book that Pete did with Peter Bodo at Champion's Mind, which was the autobiography, was more focused, obviously, on his entire life and development, and the childhood was great stuff on the childhood years, but there wasn't so much emphasis on, on, on big matches and big moments that way, and I, I wanted, to, I wanted to, from a biographical standpoint, to correct that and get it down in more comprehensive detail and put it all in perspective, and then, of course, supplement it with all the comments from, from calling Ivan even, Isovich and Rafter and McEnroe and Lendl and all these rivals. And eventually I got to Novak, which was great. And they all, they all were so enlightening with their comments. In addition to Pete sitting there, uh, you know, close to 20 years after retiring, not quite, and reflecting on it all from a different vantage point than he might have even had when he did his autobiography.
0: 20 years. 20 years. That's crazy. It makes us all feel old. It doesn't feel like 20 years, but
2: but, but we, we, we
1: first started talking. Yeah, but it was about the 2018 US Open. And, uh, you know, me being, uh, you know, the author of the book on this day in tennis history, obviously, I you know, love anniversaries and so forth. And I said to Steve, like, you know, we really should launch this in 2020, you know, because that's the 30th anniversary of Pete breaking through and winning the 1990 U.S. Open, the youngest male to ever win, uh, you know, the U.S. Open. So, you know, again, we had some bad publishing (laughs) luck, you know, as far as the pandemic and so forth, but it did come out in, in, um, you know, in 2020. And, you know, here we are in 2022 And, you know, there's an anniversary now of two other, you know, very poignant matches in Pete's career. And, um, you know, that's the 1992 U.S. Open final, which Pete actually lost to Stefan Edberg. And then also, you know, it's the 20th anniversary of him beating Andre and the... uh, you know, Adieu match um at the you know 20 uh 20 oh two uh US Open final against Andre Agassi, which was basically his and you know, eventually going to be his farewell match. But you know, I want to ask Steve, I mean, when you think about those two matches, I mean, those really are, you know, in a way, two of the most important matches in Pete's career because that 90, 1992 final was kind of like kicking the pants um uh uh uh, you know final that he was so disappointed in losing that it he really never forgot the the feeling of that loss and then obviously you know being uh you know kind of written off in 2002 and uh, everybody thinking he's washed up and then for him to have that last uh flame of glory you know in beating Andre but you know just talk about those two matches Steve I think that's uh I, I think those are two two of the most poignant matches in his career
2: yeah, absolutely Randy, and as you know I spent some uh, considerable time in the book talking about them. The 92 Open what people forget is he he was he was very was not feeling well at the end of his four set semifinal win over Jim Courier. He was slumped over and and he had to go on IV after and it was not a, not he didn't get a lot of sleep and the fascinating thing to me was that it was a very tough way to go into a major final and he won the first set from Edberg and eventually lost in four and he was unhappy with the way he competed at the end the four set sort of faded away fast after he lost the third and tiebreaker he had served for that set should have been up two sets to one in any case he really this is the one where he he did a lot of self-reflection on that and was very upset with himself didn't and that's when he discovered randy that 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 It was in his mind, it was unacceptable to lose major finals unless he'd spilled his guts on the court and given it absolutely everything he had, which I thought he had. I mean, in many cases, that'll happen after someone has had a chance to go up two sets to one at the fourth set. The momentum is with the other guy. And Edberg was on a spectacular run himself. But yes, that was a that was a victory in defeat because it was a self-awareness moment that he took with him for the rest of his career. And then everything turned in 93, Randy, as you know, where. Then he finally got his second major at Wimbledon beating Courier and he won the U.S. Open as well. And he just took off from there six years in a row, number one, which was which is a record that still stands. Because although Novak has got seven total years, he didn't do six in a row. So that's 92. 2002, he comes into the U.S. Open. He's seated number 17. He's had he's lost in the second round of Wimbledon to George Bastl, a lucky loser out on court, two. So he'd been that was a kind of a I wouldn't. Some would call it a humiliating moment. I would just say it was a it was a very jarring, scarring moment for him to lose that match on court two to somebody who didn't really belong on the court with him. But he comes to the open, having had a very mediocre summer on the hard courts, but reunited with Paul Anacone, his coach, and he wins a critical match in the third round against Greg Rzetsky in five sets. And now and then he goes on a tear and he beats Tommy Haas and eventually Andy Roddick in the quarters, which was a big win and to- topples Agassi in the final 12 years after beating Andre in the 90 final in the match that you mentioned when he became the youngest champion ever at age 19. So then as the, 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 the second part of this story is now he took a lot of time to decide, what do I want to do? He's kept pulling out of tournaments. He, fairly soon decided he wasn't going to play anything more the rest of, or kept wrestling with it, but didn't play any more the rest of that year in 2002. And then was still considering coming back in 03. And he kept uh, tossing and turning on that until he decided, no, I've had it, I'm done. So he's one of those rare athletes that could literally go out on top with a major triumph. I don't know whether this is going to be possible for a Novak or a Rafa, or it certainly would be highly unlikely likely for Roger at this point, but he had that opportunity. And I think that the big thing there, Randy, was he realized, okay, I could really push hard for Wimbledon 03 here, but if he had had a Jimmy Connors type run to the semifinals of Wimbledon, had some nice wins and did really well and lost in the semis, that would have been such a downer after winning the Open. So anything less than winning a major was not going to be good enough for him. So I think it was a really... Uh, intelligent decision to just take his time, take a period of months, be sure he's ready to go. And then once he did leave, he had no regrets whatsoever.
0: Very few athletes get to go out on on top and Pete definitely did so. And and Randy, I want to get your thought on something because I want to go back to a match. Steve and I talked about it um, with Brad Gilbert. When we had Brad on Um, Steve had originally mentioned this to me and I hadn't even thought about it. And it was, I thought Steve really highlighted this point um, very well, and it was the 2001 U.S. Open quarterfinal against him and Andre, and that was the four tiebreaker match, and the the level of both players was incredible. Pete wins that match in four sets, but. There was a standing ovation. It was a night match, remember? And there was a standing ovation at the beginning of the fourth set tiebreak. And this match was played incredibly. And everyone was, I thought, and I think a lot of people thought, thought that this was a standing ovation for this one match. The level was incredibly high. Steve actually made this point. And I thought it was so well thought out. We didn't know how many more years Pete and Andre were going to compete at this level. And Pete, and and Steve said he thought that standing ovation at the beginning of the four set tiebreaker was not only for that match, but the appreciation of their rival. Um, and so many great matches between Pete and Andre. We asked Brad about it. Brad said he didn't really think about it that way because he was too close to the moment. He was worried about that specific match. But when Steve mentioned that to me, I didn't even think about that. And I think Steve is so on point. Um, Randy, your thoughts on that.
2: David, uh, just a Jackson. The thing about it, Randy, was I, I felt like they didn't know how many more times they were going to see these guys. They would never have believed necessarily that then a year later they'd be meeting in the finals. So my feeling was that was for the breadth and scope of their careers. That was like, you've given us a great match tonight and you've given us so much pleasure across so many years and we want to let you know it.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I, I agree a hundred percent with you, Steve, that it really was an appreciation for both players. I mean, they're, they're, they're two of the greatest American champions, and, uh, you know, the U.S. Open loves their American champions. So uh, I remember that, that night.
2: I also want to, sorry to interrupt, I don't want to forget this point. It's to show you how fair our friend David is, Rich, our, our, our colleague Richard Evans, who you and I both admire, and we all admire immensely for, for his extraordinary body of work going back to 1960 when he, ghost, when he was ghostwriter for Althea Gibson on a column in London. Richard wrote a book recently on the history of tennis and tried to make the case that, that tennis fans and historians would debate, that they were, the debate would go on about whether Sampras or Agassi was the greater player. It was a chapter essentially on the 90s. And I wrote a review of his book and gave him a very good review. But that was the only thing I took him to task for was that to me that, you know, that, that yes, Andre The one thing he did that Pete couldn't do was to win all four majors, get a career grand slam. Good for him. It was a great achievement. But to me, when you have these two guys and you, you, you analyze their careers and I know Dave, this is where I admire David for stepping back and taking his Agassi cap off because he admires Andre so much. But to me, there is, you can't, you can't do that. I mean, Sampras beat him four out of five major finals. He won 14 majors. Andre won eight. He was number one, six years in a row. Andre finished 99 at number one. It, it, to me, it, the, the comparison is not there as great as Andre is, uh, and
0: I think Andre would agree with you, Steve. By the way, yeah. I think Andre would agree with you. Yeah.
1: You, you know, one thing that I, I, I've said in the context of uh, you know John McEnroe, um, you know, is you know there's the, there's the uh, the greatest tennis players of all time, greatest American tennis players of all time. You know, but then there's also the most famous tennis players of all time, and I think that you know. Andre's name and image and so forth, uh, you know, is is a little more famous than Pete, despite uh, not oh. winning any majors. And same thing with with McEnroe. I mean, I yeah. remember being in the the jungles of Zimbabwe with him when he yeah. was a Davis Cup captain. We saw some, you know, uh, Trekkers w- walking by the path was us. And I heard them say, look, that's John McEnroe. So here he is like already, <laughs> you know. <laughs> people knew who he was in the, you know, in the jungles of Africa, you know, and I think that's with Andre too. I think Andre and John's, you know, brand and their, their fame, you know, whether it was for a haircut and jean shorts or, you know, yelling at umpires, you know, their fame was bigger than Pete's. And that's okay with Pete, you know, Pete just wanted to be the best player and, and, uh, you know, he could leave the jean shorts and the, and the arguing and everything else to, to, to John and Andre. So, um, no so exactly. it's Andre the nod on, on fame over Pete
2: <laughs> yeah I, I think Pete would be fine with that uh, Randy but i I just meant that when it came to achievements it came when it came to what they had accomplished that then the comparison wasn't there despite the fact that see had a spectacular career yeah yeah no no doubt no doubt
0: no that was a great rival hey you know you guys have had <clears throat> spent so many years in the tennis world I want to ask you both and I, I'll start with Randy. Um, and it may not. I, I want to ask your favorite event to be covered. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be on the tennis court. You've done a lot of work promoting and marketing big time events and some of the biggest events uh, the tour has to offer. So I want to ask you, Randy, and then I'll, I'll pass it on to Steve. What's your favorite uh, event that, that you've covered um, over the course of your career? And if you have a couple that are very close, you, you can mention more than one. <laughs>
1: Well, for me, uh, you know, I was had the you know great privilege of being the press officer for the U.S. Davis Cup team, you know, from 1997 to 2005, and and I mentioned it a little earlier, and we st- still talk about it just so um, enthusiastically. Was the USA versus Zimbabwe Davis Cup tie in Harare, Zimbabwe, in 2000? John McEnroe's first ever tie as the captain. Andre had just. Uh, won the Australian open and flew from Australia directly to Harari. He beat Pete in the semifinals there and Pete actually got injured and, uh, you know, couldn't play, but it went down to the the fifth match. And Chris Woodruff, you know, who's now the head coach at the university of Tennessee, um, you know, won the fifth match uh, and deciding match against Wayne black, but just the atmosphere that was there and the craziness there and the excitement with, you know, John McEnroe as captain, um, you know, was just amazing. You had, you know, Robert Mugabe, you know, the Zimbabwean dictator, you know, overseeing the draw, and we had the, the draw ceremony at his palace, and we had guys with machine guns. And I tried to take a picture of the security detail, and guy hit me with a machine gun said, no photos, and <laughs> um you know, just uh just the craziness of that tie. And you know, all the media that were there, you know, Philip Bondi from the New York Daily News, Lisa Dillman from the LA Times, Bud Collins. Um, you know, there were so many uh, uh, media there. And every time we, we see each other, pretty much one of the first things we talk about is that USA Zimbabwe tie. I just was with Lavar Harper Griffith, who was the practice partner uh, for the US team that uh, week. I saw him down at the Vero Beach Futures. Uh, marty fish futures and you know we still talked about that and just how 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 fun it was to be there and the craziness so in and, and, and all i mean just davis cup for me you know the old davis cup you know three out of five sets yeah. for three days you know home and away you know in spain in great britain you know etc but specifically that usa versus uh zimbabwe tie you know and even that whole year with john McEnroe. i mean just being in his presence and just the 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 electricity that he would bring to you know Davis Cup and the whole atmosphere was just so thrilling i mean i i feel like i should do a book just on that tie or a documentary just on that uh, on that entire season with John. Cause it just had so many crazy stories from, you know, the first match in Zimbabwe to the, you know, the semifinal loss to Spain and sentent Spain, it was really spectacular, but obviously I've been to so many U S opens. I mean, the U S open is, is dear to my heart. And I've been to a couple of Wimbledon's and Wimbledon is, uh, is, is pretty special too. So uh, I, I'd like to hear from Steve on that one. Yeah, I think I, I know the answer. Well, I- <laughs>
2: Wimbledon stands alone to me. I, and I first went there in 65. I was about to turn 13 years old. That really kind of is what launched my career because my father took me out there and I got hooked on the sport so quickly. Wouldn't miss a day in the newspapers after that. Randy went to Forest Hills at the end of that summer and grew from there. But I've always had the most reverence for Wimbledon because I think it's so so impeccably run. Uh, the, the pageantry, it's just It's just to me is is. Is a sport is a tennis event that transcends the sport uh, unlike any other, and it's. I think it's always. I, I love the fact that so many sports fans are paying attention even more than they do to the U.S. Open. I love the Open, uh, the Open. Oh, it, when when you can have a tournament one hour from where you live and be driving out there every day, that's a that's a great feeling, and and just the the uh, the fervency of the fans and the enjoyment that they're getting out of it. And they're maybe not as educated as Wimbledon fans, but they're there they there they are they are having a great time and so it creates an atmosphere that maybe more resembles Roland Garros than Wimbledon but i would just to look back over the years two others that i'd like to just point to david 1972 davis cup final in bucharest i was lucky enough to be i was living with my father in london i flew over with some british writers and photographers on a package deal and was able to be there for that historic weekend when Stan Smith almost single-handedly won the Davis Cup for the U.S. by beating Stasi in the singles and winning the doubles with Eric Van Dylan and then winning the cru- crucial match the last day over Tiriak, 6-11, the fifth, to clinch it. And that was just a, an extraordinary three days. And the other one that stands out that Randy will remember well was when the Masters, what we now know as the ATP Finals, the year-end tournament, was played at Madison Square Garden, yes, I... seventy-seven Masters, which was in January of seventy-eight, and there just were so many magical moments in that building. And I don't think I've I've ever been around uh, cra- those crowds. Were maybe in some ways there there was something about the noise level and the atmosphere there that there was more of an intimacy intimacy, despite the fact it's a big building. But especially those early years, uh, you know, with that that first year especially. Connors, i remember those
0: courts for the that masters of madison square garden it didn't have doubles alleys it was just the singles, yeah, uh, singles line.
2: yeah uh, yeah and and connor's the first first one connor's lost to Vilas in the round robin and then beat borg in the finals and i can still remember frank hammond up in the chair trying to quiet the crowds randy and there was i loved i loved that tournament again it was in new york but i just thought for an indoor event i've never experienced an indoor event quite like it and i've been to many and i used to love to go to the old U S pro indoor in Philadelphia, but there was nothing like going to the garden and the women ended up having many great year end championships there too. But I, I felt like that one, that's a standout uh, among my memories.
0: This was so much fun for me guys. I, I, I don't want to end this short. I know you guys can talk all day, but before we end, I'll kind of open it up to, to either one of you final points, Randy, if you have anything last you want to ask Steve or Steve, you have anything last you want to ask Randy, I'll, I'll let you guys go. But, um, for me uh, again, Randy, thank you for introducing uh, you know Steve to myself and us connecting up on the pod, and the three of us have continued um, to talk you me and Steve and it's been so much fun personally for me um with that i'll leave it I'll leave it open to to either you uh, parting thoughts for for anybody
1: I, I'd like to ask Steve another question uh as, as far as um enthusiastic tennis fans in the world, where would you rate Dave? I think he's probably in the top five. I mean, his enthusiasm for tennis is unbelievable. And I just get so much energy when uh I talk to him in person and when I read his emails and uh, you know, when you hear that guitar rift at the beginning of the, uh, podcast, you yeah. know you're in for some great chatter and I'm so delighted that you guys are together. So Steve, I get to hear your voice uh, as well on, uh, you know, a weekly basis or so, but, uh, but yeah, uh, Dave, uh, where, where would you rank Dave as far as his enthusiasm for
2: tennis? Well, I would say the top five sums it up very well, Randy. I might put him in the top three and I don't know who the other two are, <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you seriously that I came on as a guest, actually because of you, Randy, you put it together and you said, David, you know, Steve's done this new book on Pete Sampras. And that was the first time we talked about the book and I would have had very, I had really no idea that David at that point was, had been such an Agassiz, uh, such a passionate follower of Agassiz. And, and, I, and, but nonetheless, we had a great discussion about the book and but then at some point along the line he said how would you like to join me as a co-host his enthusiasm is contagious i i feel it I, it's something that i feel is, is is something i've carried with me through my career a, there's a the fan in me has never left so i when i can join forces with someone like david that i mean we're constantly texting randy in the middle of matches he's texting me can you believe that how did <laughs> he get back from 4-1 down I, I never thought he was going to do it and and I'll be back at him. And that's that's the way it should be. And that's the way I think it has to be. And I'm sure you'd agree, Randy, especially for a podcast. The listeners can tell if people are faking it. They know the people that really care. And, and I don't think anyone can say that either one of us doesn't have a deep appreciation of the sport. But I must say it makes it it's nice for me that I don't that I can find somebody that shares my level of passion for the sport.
0: Well, it's tough to do, Steve, because you're 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 the best, man. You're up there with the absolute elite and it's been so much fun. Randy, Steve, thank you so much for this. This was I knew it was gonna be great and this did not disappoint one bit. Thank
2: you, guys. Thank you for having us, Dave. Yeah, thank you, Dave. Enjoy it.